Well, it's a joy. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, again, my name is Justin McCoy, uh, and my lovely wife back there is Katie. Um, and our two kids went off into the kids' ministry, uh, but they're, uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to, to meet them in the, in the weeks ahead. So this is actually my second week here. Um, and what that means is if this is your first week here, uh, there's a chance if you talk to Mark or Pastor Ryan, you could preach next week. Uh, there, there's a chance that you too could be in the pulpit that, that quickly. So, um, well, obviously I'm kidding. Uh, um, so I've been a youth pastor uh, up in Michigan for the last uh, 14 years. Been spent the last 12 years at my current church, and we just um, we just finished up there at the end of May. Because about a year ago, actually a year ago today, um, Mark was in Michigan. We were both officiating weddings in different parts of Michigan, and we met for breakfast um, somewhere in the middle. And uh, I was talking about uh, the Lord leading me out of youth ministry, and he's like, "What are you looking? You know, what are you, what are you interested in?" And uh, and so that's when he brought up the Navigators, and I said, that sounds like a great ministry for someone else. And, uh, and, uh, but he encouraged me to pray about it, and we prayed, and, and uh, here we are a year later uh, from that conversation. Uh, I get to preach and be here with you. Uh, but out of curiosity, how many of you are familiar with the Navigators? You're, you're actually, okay, so yeah, this, this congregate, everybody, awesome. So we're, yeah, we're heading on board, coming on board with the Navs, and uh, if you saw that picture of the church up there, one, it was, one, was that a banner? Uh, there was a... I saw it. The Nav's 20s was in, was in that picture subtly. I don't know if it was... Uh, uh, but anyway, we'll be, we'll be serving with the Nav 20s and the collegiate, collegiate ministry. And we're excited to be a part of this, this local expression of the body of Christ. Uh, well, this morning we're going to be uh, continuing the series in the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you that have been here, you've, you've been a part of it. And I've tried to catch up watching online and be a part of uh, really what you've been working through here in Matthew chapter 5. And, and so we're going to be in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you want to turn to Matthew 5, you can. Uh, this, I believe this series started uh, back at the, uh, the end of April, if I did my math right, as far as how many weeks along in this series that we are, we're in. Uh, but a month before that, in March, uh, a poll was released. And there's always polls about different things in different places. But I wanted to share one of them uh, with you. Uh, the, the poll was uh, conducted by the Wall Street Journal, and they surveyed 1,019 U.S. adults asking them various questions regarding their perception of the current state of the nation, the current state of America. And as you might imagine, 1,000 adults uh, plus adults being surveyed, the, the results were not great. Uh, the survey, um, the results were not great. In fact, there was an article written about the results, and the title of that article was rot of nation's core values quantified by single poll. Rot of nation's core values quantified by single poll. And so they found in that, in that again, just a survey of, of a little over 1,000 adults, that 78% of those who participated in the poll did not feel confident that the next generation, their, their children's generation, would be better off than their own generation. They had a negative outlook in the future. The vast majority of those who participated did not have a positive view of what was, what was trending, the way things were moving forward. And so they compared these results. They compared the, the, the results of that particular poll from 2023, from at least that was released in March, to uh, a poll in 1998 of, of similar questions. Uh, and so those who said community involvement is very important dropped from 47% in 1998 to to 27% in 2023. Those who said having children is very important dropped from 59% to, to 30%. And those who said religion 
is very important. In 1998, dropped from 62% to, to 39% today. And again, I find these statistics interesting, but, but I find the title of the article even more interesting, even, even more interesting. Rot of nation's core values quantified by a single poll. Now, this poll is not conducted by a Christian organization. Uh, the article was not uh, published by a faith-based news outlet, and yet the, the title, title captured what, they, what the, uh, the results as being rot, the rot of the nation's core values. I find it to be interesting, but not surprising. I don't, I don't find it to be that surprising. I think as Christians, we know that there, things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way that, that, that God intended them to be. We, and we don't need an article or polls to, to tell us that. We don't, we don't need, uh, that's probably not surprising information for you as well. We don't, we don't need statistics or polls or surveys to reveal that to us. We know there's something wrong with the world. We know there's something wrong with our, our nation. And, and more, most importantly, we, we know there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with, with each of us. But not only is there something wrong, it, it, it sometimes seems this way, and, and, and maybe, maybe you'll agree with me here, that sometimes as we look at, uh, watch the news or what, see what's going on in the world, it seems as though things are actually getting worse. And not only is something wrong with the world, but it seems to be getting worse by the day. And whether we refer to this as the rod of our nation's core values or, or a general decline in morality, we, we know that something is wrong. Things seem to be getting darker Day by day, things seem to be getting worse. And in the presence of, and even acceptance of, of sin, of evil, seems to continue to grow. And as Christ followers, that forces us to ask some questions. Or what forces us to, to, to wrestle with our, our place in this world. For starters, what is my role in this decaying world? What, what is my role? What is our role as Christians in this decaying, or to use the language of the, the article, this rotting world? Or a world full of rotting values. Should I try to escape? Can I hide? Should we hide, even if we can hide? Or perhaps can I watch on the sidelines from the comfort of, of my own home? Can I simply be a spectator with everything that's going on and try to stand in the background? I think we know that we can't escape. We, we, can't, we can't escape. We, we can't hide. And I think we, we know that merely watching from the sidelines is not what Christ has called us to. It's not what Christ has, has um, desires for us as, as his followers. And so that raises us, or that raises a question that I think we need to think through. And I think this passage forces us to think through. And, and that is, what is our role as Christians in this dark and decaying world? What, what is our role? What is our function? What, what are we supposed to be doing here um, in a broad uh, spectrum here, uh, maybe not the individual specifics of, of your career and, and day-to-day life, but what, what, is, what is our purpose here on this, on this earth? And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be uh, looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I hope you can follow along uh, regardless of whatever version you have this morning. Again, that's Matthew 5 and verses uh, 13 through 16. It says that you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So in both of these metaphors, both of these illustrations, salt and light, Jesus teaches us about the responsibility, the responsibility of Christians in the world. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them at least two different ways in which Christians are to live in a dark and decaying world. Or or another way to think of it is two different aspects of how they are to function in this world, how we are to function in this world. And as Jesus gives these illustrations, he emphasizes the difference between those who apprentice him and those who do not. He emphasizes the difference between the church and the world. And so first and foremost, what we're going to see this morning is that there must be some sort of distinction. There must be some sort of distinction between uh, us and between those who follow Jesus and those who do not follow Jesus. There is a distinction between the light and the dark, between the church and the world. And we're going to unpack that a little bit as we work through this passage. Jesus emphasizes our distinction but in, in this passage, but he also emphasizes our influence. That we're not just different, we're not just distinctly different, but there is an impact that we are to have in our distinction, in our our difference. And this passage does not simply imply that as Christians we are different from the world, but it gets into this reality that we are to make a difference in the world. It's here in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 to 16 that that Jesus emphasizes our distinction and, and our influence. Our distinction and our influence as we apprentice the way of Jesus. So let me read verse 13 again, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage. This is uh, perhaps if you've memorized scripture, you grew up in a children's ministry where where that was a value, this is probably a passage you've taken to heart, and so uh, I, I trust that you'll be familiar, but I want to read it again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's now, I would guess, I'm going to take a guess here, looking uh, just by show of hands. I'm, I'm, well, first, I'm going to guess that everyone has a refrigerator at home. I think that's a pretty fair guess. But I want, by show of hands, how many of you have two refrigerators, or you have a refrigerator and a chest freezer? You, you're, you're, no shame in this, all right? This is a, that means you like food. All right, yeah. Uh, so if you have, um, yeah, <laughs> if you have this, a lot of us in, in, uh, in America, right, we have... Uh, Multiple refrigerators. Usually, I grew up with parents had one in the garage, one in the kitchen, um, and they're whether it's a office refrigerator. We we like to preserve our food. That is primarily what we stick in our refrigerators. There's no judgment here, but, but as you know, refrigerators are a modern day luxury. Refrigerators are a modern day luxury. Electricity is is a modern day luxury. Without electricity or modern refrigeration, salt was primarily used as a preservative in the time of Jesus. Throughout history, salt has been used in a variety of different ways. However, in Jesus' day, it was primarily used as a preservative, so it's, it's most likely, that's what's most likely going through the minds of Christ's disciples when he calls them, or when he says, you are the salt of the earth. That's most likely what they're thinking of is a preservative. They're thinking, you are the preservative of the earth. Now today, right, most of you probably have salt in your homes. Uh, you probably are not using it for preserving. Uh, perhaps uh, you're doing some canning or something like that. But most of us, we use salt primarily as a flavor, as a seasoning for our food. In Michigan, uh, where I'm coming from, I use a ton of salt every year on my driveway to melt the ice relatively unsuccessfully. Uh, if you've been up in the Midwest, uh, it, there's just, winters are, are terrible. Did I, did I mention, uh, we're excited 
but uh, uh, we are excited to move to Tennessee. Uh, it's just, it's warm and, and hot, and, and I love it. Um, anyway, that has nothing to do with it. All right, so anyway, we, we, we love our refrigerators. We, we have refrigerators, and in some cases, multiple refrigerators to preserve our food. Uh, that, that's normal for us. But in the first century, though, they used salt to delay the rot in their fish, in, in their meat, or whatever they were trying to preserve. They would put salt into that which would ordinarily decay. You'd put salt into something that would ordinarily decay, and the presence of the salt would, would delay the decay. And excuse my, my, that rhyming there, but, but, but Brett said that pastors are, are poets. So, um, so, uh, so but, but the, the, the salt will delay the decay. It, it slows down the rot. So to say that we are the salt of the earth is to say that we are, as Christians, are salt for the earth. We're salt for the earth. You see, for salt to be worthwhile, it must be used. We know that. Um, we, just owning salt, having it in our possession, doesn't do a whole lot of good. It must be used on our meat and in the meat to be effective, whether it's for flavoring or for, or for preservation. It wouldn't have done any good for those living in Jesus' day to own salt and not use it. Like Everyone knew that. That's, that's common sense. And so we're not just salt on the earth, we are salt for the earth. It shapes the way we think about this passage. That we're not just, it's not just a matter of location, it's a matter of our, our purpose. And so we're salt for the earth. We have a purpose in our location. We have a function as Christians living in this, this world. The function is in part to, to delay that decay, to slow down the rot. We are to slow down the rot. We can't escape. We can't hide. We have a purpose here. And we are a preservation um, element for the world. I heard another pastor word it this way, and I think he words it better. Jesus did not say that we are salt of the shaker, but we're salt of the earth. We are to go into the earth in the same way the salt would go into whatever you're using it on, even today. For salt to be worthwhile, it must be used. It must be utilized. Practice, practically speaking, what this looks like is we must have a, a faithful Christian presence in the world. A faithful Christian presence in the world. I appreciate your mission statement here at Fellowship Nashville. And uh, it's, it's uh, or at least a mission statement motto, um, a gospel-centered church in the city for the city and seeking a city above. And I saw some of you even have it on, on your t-shirt. Right? I, I love that. One of the values, too, on the website, at least uh, assuming I'm coming in as an outsider here, but one of the values of this church that I, I came across on your website is that presence matters. Presence matters. The website says, we desire to join Jesus on mission right where we are, recognizing that the gospel that has come to us is meant to flow through us. We must have a faithful Christian presence in the world. And so if by God's grace we apprentice the way of Jesus, if we apprentice the way of Jesus and we begin to see the world through Jesus' perspective and align our lives with that reality, the watching world will see something distinctly different in us. Right, we begin to see and align our lives with that reality, the world will see something distinctly different in us. But if we remain distant from the world, we'll be as ineffective as salt that never leaves the shaker. Uh, and so to be distinctly different, but, not to be, but, but to be distant, would be as ineffective as salt that never leaves the shaker. So the passage continues, all right? It says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, here's the thing. 
and out of curiosity, yeah, just anybody, you, you were an English major in, in college, uh, you teach, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance for what's about to happen. Um, and so, um, but here, here it is, salt is salt, right? It cannot be not salt because it's salt. I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, it doesn't feel right, uh, but I got a thumbs up, so we're going to go with it. But salt is salt, it cannot be not salt because it's salt. Salt ultimately is what it is, or it does what it does because it is what it is. Salt actually uh, really can't lose its saltiness in its purest form. That means this phrase here, if salt loses its saltiness, it's an odd statement. Salt cannot technically stop being salt. It can't uh, cease to be salt. Salt cannot uh, lose its, its, unless it breaks down in, in some way or form. But in this time and place, the primary source of salt was the Dead Sea. And out of curiosity, because I'm, I'm used to working with youth, and, and they talk a lot when I teach, and, uh, and so it's a little more interactive. So I'm just going to work with me here. How many of you, have anybody been to, you've been to Israel? You've been to the, you've been to the Dead Sea? All right, a few of you. Yeah. you did you float? You have to. If you go there, you can't just look at it. You have to go in it. All right, so uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Uh, I just, it's really fun. It's, I'm going to recommend that if you get a chance to go to Israel, float in the Dead Sea. It's awesome. But, but the, the, salt, the Dead Sea was the source, of the primary source of salt, in, in that day. And uh, what would happen is that sometimes other minerals would be, can, uh, would mix in with the, the, the salt, and the purity of the salt would begin to break down. And when those other minerals, even good minerals, begin to mix with the salt, the, the saltiness would begin to decrease. Its effectiveness as salt would begin to decrease. So when Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, he is likely telling his listeners that they must not allow themselves to be contaminated, and then lose their effectiveness as, as Christ's followers. They must not allow themselves to be contaminated with uh, the ways of the world, and then therefore no longer have the impact that they were designed to have, that they're supposed to have. They must not lose what makes them distinct, their Christ-likeness, their, their godliness. So when we lose our distinction, when we live worldly lives, we, we lose our effectiveness or, or influence in, in the world. This concept, though, it's, it's not just unique to the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't just a, Jesus says it here, but it comes up in different ways in the rest of the New Testament. So in James, in another familiar passage, in James uh, chapter 1 and verse 27, uh, it's, it's most of us know the first part of it. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. But the, the verse actually keeps going, and I put the second half on there because it's, it's, it's connected to what we're looking at here in, in the Sermon on the Mount. James says, do these, um, he says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As you do these things, right, as you take care of orphans and widows, be careful not to allow the world to stain you. Uh, that there's, there's a deep connection between our impact and our character, between what we're doing in the world and, and who we're helping and, and how we're living, and, and also... Um, our relationship with Jesus Christ, our, our character. And so there's this warning to, to keep from being unstained here. But we see it again in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, Paul is talking. So Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. James is talking about it here in James. And then we jump to 2 Timothy, and this is the Apostle Paul. And he, and he gives another picture, uh, like Jesus. He's using illustrations here. And he says in, that there's a great house. In a great house, there are many vessels. And as followers of Christ, we are to be clean vessels that are useful to the master. That, that part of being our usefulness is, is connected to our cleanliness. That there's this, again, this, this, this concept comes up over and over again. And so whether you prefer the picture of being an unstained from the world, 
or whether you uh, uh, like the clean vessel illustration, the idea of being clean to be useful to the master, or whether you like the picture of salt not being contaminated so that it might not lose its saltiness or effectiveness. The idea here is, is, is similar. The, the picture that we're getting in these passages is similar. If the world stains us, we, we cannot influence it. If we're not clean vessels, we're not as useful to the master of the house. If we're, if we're contaminated, we lose our effectiveness in the world around us. We lose our saltiness. We lose what makes us distinct. As a result, we're, we're, we're ineffective disciple makers. We're ineffective uh, ambassadors of the king and, and ineffective apprentices of Jesus Christ. And so, but to be clear here, though, as I say this, uh, your, your mind might be rolling like, well, wow, am I supposed to be perfect? How, that, that's impossible. Uh, I can't live that good. Uh, and, and you're right. Uh, we can't, we can't live perfect lives. That's the beauty of the gospel. We, that's, that's, that's why I love Mark Sheridan just a, really briefly when he came up before he talked about Father's Day. Just a brief overview of the gospel, and I hope you heard that. We are, we are imperfect. We can't live perfect lives. In fact, we are um, people that, as we strive to live like Christ, we also are people marked by repentance. In fact, if you've been here, I love that this series started off with, with Pastor uh, Ryan. He was, he was talking about repentance. Before we even got into Matthew 5, he started talking about repentance. And I would encourage you, if you didn't hear that, you, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't here for that, to go back and listen to that message. What marks us as followers of Christ is, is not just our pursuit of Jesus, not just our holiness, not just our Christ-likeness, but also our ongoing repentance, that we are a people who, who continually need Jesus. And so, yes, we want to live different lives, but when we fail to live different lives, we need, we need, to, we need to go back to Jesus. We need to confess and repent. But the passage continues. Jesus shifts now to a different metaphor. He goes from salt, now he gets into light, and not just the light of the world, but he talks about city on a hill and a lamp, and there's actually several illustrations in this, but the light concept in general comes in verse 14. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You are the light of the world. This is, this is an amazing uh, verse when we think about the rest of the Gospels. In John chapter 8, Jesus actually calls himself the light of the world. Uh, and so right here when he says, you are the light of the world, something significant is, is happening. He's, he's transferring that light to his disciples. That the, that he's saying that Christians are reflecting the light that ultimately comes from Christ. We don't, the, the, the light ultimately comes from God himself. But as those who... Our lights in this world, we are not to hide it. We cannot hide it. We should not hide it. But it raises questions then. How, how do we live as a city on a hill? If we are the light of the world, if we get that light from Jesus, how do we shine like a city on a hill? How do we let our light shine before others? It's, it's, again, it's, most of you probably grew up familiar with the children's song, and I'm going to bless you by not singing that. Uh, but I think yeah, this little light of mine, right? You, you, you know if you don't know the song, I'm, so, I'm sorry that you missed out on that in your childhood, but, but uh, you can Google it later. Uh, but we are the light of the world, and we're to let that light shine. As Christians, we reflect the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ by living in such a way that says, there's something better than this world. There's something beyond this world. When we don't get entrapped and sucked into all the things that are going around us and, and, get, and fall into the mindset that this is it. And we live as a light in the world when we, when we live in such a way that we're showing those around us that this, this is not it. There's something beyond it. 
As salt, we try to delay the decay. So as salt, we're, we're, we're delaying the decay, we're pushing back the rot, and, and it's, it's a kind of a defense almost mindset if you're into sports. Uh, there's, there's a delaying, a preserving of that which is, is good by, by pushing back the rot. But as light, we are reflecting something beyond this earth. We're bringing forth something that's good. We're not just delaying evil. We're not just, we're not just pushing back the rot. We're pushing forth that which is good and true and beautiful. And when we do that, Jesus gives us this promise here, this, this result that is incredible. Verse 16, says, in this, um, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What the Bible says is that when the world sees these good works coming from the church, when the world sees these good works coming from Christ's followers living distinctly different lives, there's a result, something happens, and, and from when Christians apprentice the way of Jesus, then the watching world will give glory to God who is in heaven. I mean, that's incredible. That, that's the goal. That's not just the goal of this passage. That's, that's really the, the goal of life. We want God to get all of the glory, not only in our lives, but if we can live in such a way that others bring glory to God too because of what they're seeing. That's incredible. What this means is when the economy is what it is, and your 401k is plummeting, right? Uh, your retirement is looking a little further out maybe than it was before. And your friends and coworkers are grieving about their depleted retirement fund, but, but you respond with a peace that surpasses all understanding. Because you're living for something beyond this world. You're, you're, you're not living for retirement. You're not living for that day. You're living for something beyond that. When the unthinkable happens and when tragedy strikes and the world looks at you and expects to see hopelessness, they expect to see despair. They expect to see uh, depression. And you're rejoicing in your suffering even through tears. Rejoicing through your suffering even through tears because you know that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces hope. As Romans 5 says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so when tragedy strikes and people see hope in our lives, People see us living for something beyond this world. We are being a light in this dark world. We're pointing to something beyond the temporary, beyond, beyond the physical, beyond just this material world. We live in a culture where anxiety and stress have become so prevalent. It's, uh, when I started in youth ministry 14 years ago, I, I, don't, I never talked about it. And in the last couple of years, I feel like every student I, I talk to, anxiety has become so prevalent. And then among their parents, stress. Uh, stress and, uh, to know someone who's not anxious or stressed, I'm a little, uh, sometimes we're like, what's wrong? What, what are you doing? Uh, we expect, we expect everyone to have some level of anxiety or stress, but, but can you imagine, can you imagine if the church was filled with believers who were marked by supernatural peace? Can you imagine how countercultural that would be if as a church, we were predominantly, predominantly a people at peace? People would notice. People would notice in this current culture, in this world, if that was that was the, the spirit that they came across when they, when they interacted with us. Not only would people notice, but I think they, it would be more attractive than ever. I think peace is so attractive right now. I think it's always been, but I think even more so in today's age. People are drawn to that. If, if the watching world looked at us and says, your, your life is just as crazy as mine. Your life is just as crazy as mine. Your life is, you're, you're, you're going through all the things that everyone else is going through. Tragedy, health issues, job issues, but you're not unraveling. 
You're, you're not constantly stressed out. Yeah, yeah, you're not, you know, always have a smile on your face, but there is something different. You seem to have joy. What, what's the deal? When we begin to see the world through Jesus' perspective and align our lives with that reality, the watching world will see something distinctly different in us. And they might just have some questions. When people see this, this is so weird in our culture and in our world that when people see this, this level of peace, uh, this uh, less, even less stress, not a complete absence of stress, but, but less stress, less anxiety, uh, I think they're going to not only notice it, but they're going to they're ask questions. They're going to be curious. And I think that's what Peter's getting after in 1 Peter 3.15. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I'm, I'm going to, a little confession here uh, on my part. Uh, see, this verse assumes that people are asking us about the hope that is in us. This verse assumes that. But over the years, I've taken a lot of seminary classes. I, I enjoy, I'm one of those weird people that enjoys school. Uh, I'm not necessarily good at it, but I, I enjoy at least thinking that I'm learning. Uh, and so I, I, I've taken a lot of classes, and most of it was because I wanted answers for myself, but I also, I also wanted to be able to give answers to those who asked. I wanted to be ready. And I looked at this passage, and, and the, the mindset behind this passage was I wanted to, to be able to give a defense. I wanted to have the information. And as I began to uh, just continue in pastoral ministry, I spent most of my time around other believers, I spent most of my time around other Christians, and I found that I was, in all my efforts to be able to give a defense, I actually, I actually wasn't living my life among the lost, so nobody was actually asking about the hope that was within me, which is the, actually the point of, of the passage here, is that, that we'd be able to give an answer for those who, who ask about the hope that you have. And I had all kinds of answers, but nobody was asking me questions. And I think there's a danger here. There's a danger that maybe, maybe you've fallen into it as well in, in, in pursuing Christian fellowship where we, we, we have the head knowledge, but we, we're not living our lives as a light in the world, a light for the world. As the light of the world, our lives point to a hope, to something, a hope that is beyond this world. It's possible as Christians, though, to live distant from the world without realizing it. It's possible to, to live distant from a watching world. It's also possible that intentionally or unintentionally, our actions and speech and our lives begin to blend into the world around us. And sometimes we, we even we, we, we try to justify it in a lot of different ways. And, and, and maybe there's, there's times and places I'm not saying we all need to wear Christian t-shirts and have megaphones. That's, that's certainly, uh, megaphones probably are not a good idea. Um, but we begin to blend into the world around us. But the thing about light is light does not blend into the darkness. Light shines in the darkness. And so when we apprentice the way of Jesus, we will live distinctly different lives. But we need to be careful living distinctly different lives and, and, and be careful not to isolate ourselves from the watching world. I believe that is what Jesus is getting after in verse 15 here. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. All right, so with the salt metaphor, so kind of to rein this in, you're like, okay, we're, we're like kind of taking these concepts and boiling them down here for a, a takeaway. With the salt metaphor, Jesus says, be careful, be careful of contamination. If we lose our saltiness, it cannot be restored. If we lose what makes us distinct, we lose our effectiveness as Christians wherever the Lord has placed you, wherever in your neighborhood, your workplace, wherever the Lord has placed you. If we, if we begin to be contaminated by the world, if we look more like the world than like Jesus, we lose our effectiveness 
as disciple makers, as ambassadors of the king, um, we lose that. But we also need to be careful of isolation. The light metaphor uh, cautions us to be careful of isolating ourselves from the watching world. Uh, it's possible for some to, to be distinct from the world, but the world is, doesn't actually see you. And so you're, you're like salt that never leaves the shaker. There's a distinction there, but you're not in the world. You're not living for the world. And, and then there's a possible to be in the world, to be a light in the world, but, but you've blending, you're blending in so much that you lose your effectiveness, that you're, you're, you've not isolated, but you're also not distinct, and therefore that you lose that effectiveness. And so we need to be careful of both of these illustrations here, both, both of the, the, what these illustrations are, are leaning towards, and that's contamination and, and isolation. Friends, when we live our lives led by the Holy Spirit, pursuing holiness and following Jesus, people are going to notice. We don't, we don't need to, I think, draw their attention. We don't need to announce it. I think when we live, when we apprentice the way of Jesus, people will, will notice. We will shine brightly. And when we experience tragedy and people see hope, when, when, when we experience uh, trials and different circumstances that others break and fall under, but we, we cling to Jesus, even through tears, people are going to notice a difference, and they might even ask questions. So the end of verse 16, that's, that's the goal. The goal is that God would be glorified. That's what we need to pray to that end. We need to, we need to pray that we're living in such a way that God would be glorified through the lives of others when they see our good deeds. The only way that they're going to see our good works, though, is, again, if we avoid isolation. We need to avoid isolation, and we must get beyond the walls of our homes, beyond the walls of our church, even the new church next week. We need to get beyond that. Even as we celebrate the gathering of coming together, we need to make sure that as we leave, we enter into a watching world and that the world would see our good deeds and glorify our Father. As the worship team comes up and makes their way back to the stage, let me, let me close with this. I mean, I, my prayer uh, for you, but I say this because it's my, it's my prayer for myself. It's my, as we've been talking to friends and family, get, coming from Michigan, getting ready to come to, you, to Nashville, what we've asked is that, our, that they would pray for us, that we would live holy, distinctly Christian lives among the lost, to impact the lost for the glory of our Father in heaven. That's, that was, that's been our prayer that we've asked for others to pray for us, but it's our prayer uh, for this church to continue to be a light in a dark place. Maybe be a people marked by repentance when we fail to see and align ourselves with Christ's kingdom rule. I want to encourage you. I'm going to pray, and the band is going um, to close with a song. I'm going to pray for us uh, that even as we pursue that, and we fail along the way. Even as we seek to live distinctly different lives, and we, we end up looking sometimes just like the world. I want to praise God that his grace is enough to restore us and that in repentance we can, we can cling to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this, this wonderful morning. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you, Lord, that, that you are the light, that we get to reflect your light. I pray that we would be a light in the darkness, Lord. Wherever, wherever each of us is going, whatever suburb or, or, or uh, direction out of this city that we're going after this message, Lord, I pray that we would be a light and that as we gather or we'd be refreshed and restored and so that every Sunday when we go back out to our workplace, to our neighborhoods, to our, to our homes, Lord, that we would shine brightly for you. Help us to be distinctly different, uh, but Lord, help us, help us to, uh, to make a difference. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.